so I think one of the things that always bothers me about the way people talk about information is it's okay to say that physical system can acquire information and it can learn without ever having to point at the atoms that are actually containing the information and how is the information actually built into the structure of that physical system. And I'm a physicist and I am in some ways a materialist, but I also think that there's something missing in the way that we describe those things because I do think information is a material property, but when we're talking about it, we don't have a way of talking about it as a material property. And so all of these things are kind of built on informational ideas, but I don't know of of a, a way to unify those with fundamental physics and talk about matter in the universe, certain kinds of matter have this property. What is it about that matter? Like, what are the features? What could you go in the lab and measure? How could you actually say that this transition happened as the origin of life? What is life and where does it come from? These are two of the deepest, most vexing and persistent questions in science and their enduring mystery and allure is complicated by the fact that scientists approach them from a myriad of different angles, hard to reconcile. Whatever else one might identify as universal features of all living systems, most scholars would agree life is a physical phenomenon unfolding in time. And yet current physics is notorious for its inadequacy with respect to time. Life appears to hinge on information transfer. But again, what do we mean by information and what is its relationship to energy and matter? If humankind can't settle fundamental issues with these theoretical investigations, we might be missing other kinds of life and mind, not just in outer space, but here on Earth right beneath our noses. But new models that suggest a vastly wider definition of life offer hope that we might, soon, not only learn to recognize the biospheres and technospheres of other living worlds, but notice other aliens at home, and even find our place amidst a living cosmos. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week on the show, we speak with SFI external professor Sarah Walker, deputy director of the Beyond Center at Arizona State University, where she acts as associate professor in half a dozen different programs. In this conversation, we discuss her pioneering research in the origins of life and the profound and diverse implications of assembly theory, a new kind of physics she's developing with chemist Leroy Cronin and a team of SFI and NASA scholars. Sarah likes to speculate out loud in public conversation, so strap in for an unusually enthusiastic, animated, and free-roaming conversation at the very bleeding edge of science. And be sure to check out our extensive show notes with links to all our references at complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and consider making a donation or finding other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. Sarah Walker, this is a long time coming. Thank you so much for being on Complexity Podcast. I'm so excited. It's been a long time coming for me too. So we actually did sort of have you on the show when we shared the episode that you did with Big Biology mm-hmm. on a little like swap over on our feed. But I'm going to pretend that that conversation was non-canonical 
insist no prior knowledge from any listener and ask you to introduce yourself as though we have no idea who one another are. <laughs> Excellent. I'm Sarah Walker, and I am currently a human. <laughs> I'm a professor at Arizona State University and also on the external faculty here at Santa Fe. And I like to think deeply about the nature of life and what we are and how life originates in the universe and whether there are laws of physics that might describe key features of that so we can solve the problem of origins and maybe find aliens. Okay. Well, so I like to normally give people a soft landing into the heady ideas that we discuss yes. by providing people a bit of uh, biographical framing about the intellectual life that is devoted to probing these particular questions. So if you could tell me how you got interested in this stuff in the first place and how you became a scientist and became linked up into this scientific community, I would love to start there. Sure. So I actually didn't really have any exposure to science as a child. I mean, other than like you know, maybe watching things on TV. But my dad's a hairstylist. And my mom is a uh, antique dealer and does interior decorating. So I can't, just came from like a really artistic family. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life when I was in high school, but I liked science. And I decided to go to community college because I also didn't really have family that had been to university. And that seemed like an easy choice. And it was there that I fell in love with physics. <laughs> so basically what happened, I, I, you know, I just, long story short, you know, got romanticized by the idea that we could describe reality um, in such an abstract way, but it could be such a deep explanation. And that really became a driving force for me to get trained as a theoretical physicist. But then eventually when I got to graduate school, my PhD advisor got me interested in the origin of life problem, which at first I wasn't that interested in because it wasn't a problem in physics. And I thought physicists had the best way of thinking about reality by abstracting it so much. But then I realized um, origin of life offered a lot of things in terms of the kind of creative process I wanted to do in science in the sense that it was kind of like the wild west of science like nobody knew how to think about the problem and that was why I wanted to become a physicist in the first place because of these major conceptual shifts that we've undergone in our understanding of reality and surely there must be some associated with life so then that kind of became my calling and I've just been really driven by that problem ever since awesome so there's a uh, an, an article we'll link to in the show notes as we will with all of these Maybe the piece where we start talking about all this stuff. Maybe you want to start it earlier, but as you discuss in your work, like you are willing to draw a line of continuity in your own personal identity all the way back mm-hmm. to like dust and prior. So tell me if this is the right place to tie off the start of our conversation. Algorithmic Origins of Life, the paper that you, you wrote with Paul Davies, yeah. seems like at least a, no, it's good. a milestone That's- in, in there. That's when baby Sarah grew up into more mature Sarah. <laughs> yeah, so actually that paper originated. I showed up at ASU, and the whole sequence of events leading up to that is also super interesting. But um, but basically I show up, and Paul Davies was supposed to be my postdoc advisor. And he sits me down like day one, and he's like, what do you think is going to be needed to solve the origin of life? Maybe you should just focus on that for your postdoc. <laughs> Write a, like a conceptual paper because we don't know what the right conceptual framing is. And I think people really underappreciate in science that if you don't ask the right question, you're not going to get an answer. And part of the problem, I think, historically with the origin of life field is that people have been kind of dancing around the questions. And for me, the question always was, what is the difference between life and non-life? And how do you quantify that transition? And so what we ended up trying to do with that paper was talk about what would it look like if we could develop some kind of formal way, 
some kind of mathematical way of talking about the origin life transition. And so that was really sort of a, a, the seeds of the ideas to try to really think about this problem from the perspective of doing what physicists do really well, abstract the problem to the point where you can kind of see some universal principles at play and what might those look like. So I am still flaming hot from the re-entry from listening to the four-hour conversation you recorded with Lee Cronin and, and Lex Friedman on Lex's show. And that one just goes straight into the biggest, most sort of fundamental stuff. I want to try and square the circle of that with the effort to draw a more sort of narrative path yeah. through your work. But I want to call the shot before we take it, which is that I really want to get into this recent work that you've done over the last several years on assembly theory, and then open up from there into how you've been unpacking that and exploring it. You've got this new tool and you're finding ways to apply it everywhere. And there are some really deep questions that I don't normally get to ask on this show that I think you're uniquely well-suited to address. But before we get there, we got to lay some, some groundwork in this paper on the algorithmic origins of life, you talk about how the origin of life may correspond to a physical transition associated with a shift in causal structure where information gains direct and context-dependent causal efficacy over the matter it is instantiated in. So many words. Whoa, yes, okay. We all, we all love so many words here, I think. But this is such a key idea in, at least in terms of personal interest, the recent work that you've done on speculative stuff around planet scale yeah. intelligence, right. that I really would love to hear you lay out you yeah. know, the, the sort yeah. of preliminaries to assembly theory and then you right. know, how, how you're thinking really, really substantially differs from the way that a lot of other people are thinking about this. Yeah, stuff. so I think um, I think you're right to point that out. So something that's really interesting to me because I, you know, I, I give talks a lot is, actually, I just got a comment on my talk this week that someone saw me give a talk two years ago and it was on a totally different thing. But for me, the ideas I'm working on haven't actually changed. It's just they've evolved to be more precise to the actual question. So this is a little tangential way, but I just love that you're picking up on this sort of narrative because I think when you're asking these really hard questions, you have to constantly be willing to refine the ways that you're thinking about the problem and and um, and completely rewrite the, the sort of ideas you have in your mind about what the right, right way of approaching it is. So, um, so some people may see a very big difference between uh, my early work talking about the origin of life as this transition in causal structure and the relationship to top-down causation, which I'll explain in a minute what all those fancy words mean, <laughs> and what I do now with assembly theory. But what I think is happening with assembly theory and why I'm so excited about it is there are all these conceptual gaps when people try to address the origin of life question, the questions of emergence and complexity and information in the universe, that we have all these words about talking about. It seems like everyone has a deep intuition for how they should work, but we don't have the right formalism for thinking about them. We don't have the right abstraction yet. It's sort of like trying to think about unifying celestial and terrestrial motion before Newton came up with the laws of gravitation and motion. It's just not even a question you could ask about how these things are the same or how they're different. So I think that sort of history is really important and the, the connection between the ideas and like, are you in the right space that now you've built a framework that's actually expansive and allowing you to address all these questions that have been kind of open for a while. So the thing with the algorithmic origins of life, basically like there's this kind of paradoxical thing where it seems like 
things like us matter to the universe, right? So I can make a cognitive decision right now to move my coffee cup across the table. And philosophers will kind of debate about this in the context of like, did your thought cause that cup to move? Or was it actually just some underlying physical mechanism that you might trace all the way down to the standard model of particle physics? So this is sort of the debate that people have. And it becomes a really interesting debate when you get into life and mind, because it's in those places where it seems like this very abstract thing like thoughts or informational patterns in DNA seem to be something that's responsible for what happens in the universe. So you talk about information as an abstract thing being causal. So for example, I, you know, words are very abstract things. Words are things that can hop between physical entities. Maybe I'll just tell all the listeners out there right now to move their, if they have a coffee cup across the table or whatever equivalent thing, or just stand up, sit down. You know, now that's a case where something very abstract, words that came out of my mouth that were generated in the electrical activity of my brain, are now traveling over Michael's computer to all of you. And so there's this debate about, is that just sort of like a useful description that we use? Or is there anything kind of fundamental about that? And that becomes really important in talking about this distinction between life and physics. Because when people have been talking about life, it seems to be that information is this primary category. It seems to organize everything in biology. But it's not a natural category in physics. And so then the question becomes, how do you make this property very abstract? In abstract, in the sense that I mean, if you think about a word, a word is not tied to me as a physical system or the written page as a physical system, right? But somehow it retains its properties when when I speak the word or when I write the word. And those are really different physical instantiations. There's the explanation for that word. They're very different physical implementations of the same information. And obviously that comes up in biochemistry because we know the information in DNA is copied and it's read out to produce cellular architecture. So anywhere you look in life, this kind of idea of information being important seems important and seems to actually be what you might call a causal category that's actually somehow responsible for things that happen. So this whole idea of trying to point out that the emergence of information being causal is the origin of life transition was to really clearly articulate that there's a difference between how we think about things in physics where material objects are the only things that seem to matter and they're the only things that can be causes to when you have these sort of higher level systems that emerge, higher level systems being me as an organized entity, that then seem to be able to control what happens next. That's sort of like the paradoxical thing of life. So the proposal was, if we could figure out how to narrow down what that transition actually looks like, we might be able to solve the origin of life. So just naive curveball, I guess, is, you know, there's a lot of talk in the complex systems enthusiast community outside of SFI. There's a lot of interest in, you know, the notion of, because a lot of these people are like adjacent to machine learning and they're thinking about inference and active inference. And then you've got people like Carl Friston that are trying to like view the brain through this lens. In what ways is that different from what you're talking about? This like matter organizing itself is adaptation and inference kind of synonymous or I think there's some subtle differences so I think one of the things that always bothers me about the way people talk about information is it's okay to say that physical system can acquire information and it can learn without ever having to point at the atoms that are actually containing the information and how is the information actually built into the structure of that physical system and I'm a physicist and I am in some ways a materialist But I also think that there's something missing in the way that we describe those things, because I do think information is a material property. But when we're talking about it, we don't have a way of talking about it as a material property. 
And so all of these things are kind of built on informational ideas, but I don't know of of a, a way to unify those with fundamental physics and talk about matter in the universe, certain kinds of matter have this property. What is it about that matter? Like, what are the features? What could you go in the lab and measure? How could you actually say that this act- this transition happened as the origin of life? So that is this like half of the notes I've gathered circles around around this question around, like I said, in the conversation you had with, with Lee and Lex, a big piece of that conversation is on whether it's even possible to quantitatively measure the interiority like the yeah. subjective experience of a system and this right. is a, this is a huge topic right because right. this is the week right. you know to timestamp this podcast this is the week that Blake Lemoyne Google engineer protested whether he's sincere or whether he's a prankster trying to push a conversation is a, an interesting question in yeah. its own right but you know pushed that the lambda natural language system is a person and mm-hmm. you know it's an important conversation right now and it's like it's clear that we don't really know how to think about these things i just want to stack a couple things on here and just see what you do with them okay one was and i love that you you said this in that lex friedman episode you said i talk in third person when i think very abstractly so like as a trained physicist you know Mm -hmm. you're kind of like embodying you're instantiating this thing and you know and i was thinking about that because i'm at least in conversations that i had with brian arthur on the show when we were talking about his paper economics and nouns and verbs And his whole point with that paper was that the claims that we're making about reality as it is are contingent on the methodologies we use to Mm -hmm. disclose them. And so if you're using linear algebra, everything in an economy is going to be a a static object. If you're using algorithmic thinking, it's going to be a, a computational process of some kind. So it seems like there's actually a juncture and I'm kind of skipping ahead. Can I respond to this though? Because you did trigger something for me that's really interesting. Because when I first entered the original life field, something that became very apparent very fast was that everyone was thinking about the problem from a very specific set of disciplinary and experiential biases, Right. right? So it was like the people that were trained in molecular biology, or biology at all would kind of focus on like this gene-centered view for the original life. We need to get a, a genetic system that can copy itself. The people that thought maybe more about geochemistry or physics would be very much like this energy metabolism type view. And then there was like, you know, other groups that would think about the compartmentalization. And it just seemed to be that you could almost predict what kind of theory for the original life someone had based on what, what they were trained in. And of course, I'm a physicist, so I was doing the same thing. You know, my idea about the original life is like some very abstract thing. But over time, I started started to realize that like one of the sort of metaphysical aspects that's super interesting about asking questions about the nature of life is you're of course a living system. Um, I mean, that's apparent in all sorts of inquiries, right? So if I ask questions about gravitational systems, of course, I'm, I'm a, a gravitationally attracted to the earth and I'm a gravitating body. But in the life case, it's much more intimate to the actual process of doing science. So I started really thinking about this sort of metal level of trying to think about myself as a theoretical physicist studying life as an example of life, right? And this is where I got into all these examples that I like to use about the laws of physics being things that are information that was acquired over evolutionary timescales by our biosphere and then allow us to open up this possibility space of things that wouldn't be possible unless we understood those regularities of nature and wrote down laws. So it was like you had to start doing theoretical physics of theoretical physicists. But that really started, I think, with trying to check my own bias and also try to recognize that I was looking at things from this sort of level of understanding that I was a system trying to describe what I am as a system. And of course, you can't get out of your biases. So I I have no idea where the boundaries of my bias are. But those are the ways that I've tried to play with that. 
Yeah, and, and, you know, again, not to just rant on this thing that's sort of meta to the work in that way, but a theme that comes up again and again on this show is the growing significance of adequately and multidimensionally addressing your claims Mm -hmm. about the world. You know, that like science itself really started as like, show your work, like you have to be able to reproduce these results. And so you need to lay out the methods. But it's been interesting to watch how the recognition that there's a certain degree to which reproducibility is just not in the cards. Right. (laughs) And so you also want to include you know, in some way, there's this thing, David Krakauer talks about this a lot about the tension between the completeness and the parsimony of our our models, right. our understandings and how, yeah, like, is it important to say that I ran this experiment on a full moon? Like, maybe it is. Yeah, maybe yeah. it turns out that there's yeah. something going on with the right. magnetic earth sun mm-hmm. relationship that's affecting plant growth. Yeah. So anyway. That's... No, I think I, I think that's hitting something deep. I mean, I really worry about the reproducibility of anything origin of life event on because the space <laughs> gets really huge, right? And uh, I've thought about that quite a lot. That like some of the irreproducibility of results in certain areas are actually indicative of more fundamental features of the fact that when you reproduce an experiment, we think that we can reproduce the exact same experiment twice in the universe, but you're not because the, like if the universe is chugging forward in time and it's actually like a different physical system when you do the experiment again, it's like that parable, you know, like no person steps in the same river twice or, and this is also really consistent with the, the sort of theories that we're building about the nature of life, that time has a directionality to it, that objects are built over time and they have to constantly be rebuilt. So even our bodies are not the same physical structures they were. So, and I think there's probably some underlying stochasticity in that that might be apparent in some experiments. We've talked a little bit about measuring the, the rate of novelty generation of the universe. And it must be, if you could take all this, this would be crazy. This is So this is me totally like riffing on what you were saying. I haven't thought this idea before. But Great. if you could imagine you could take all of the data across the planet on all the experiments and the variation in them, could you pull out some statistical signature of like the novelty generation rate on our planet? I think that's probably possible. Actually, you know, a lot of your work reminds me of far less scientific encounters I've had with the arm-waving insanity of people like Terrence McKenna. Yes. You know, who had this whole novelty wave thing. And like, of course, he like fudged his mathematics so that all of history would suddenly fold in on itself and happen at once in 2012. But I think that he was nonetheless on the trail of an accurate intuition about, you know, know, you've written papers with Stuart Kaufman and, and the way that recombinant processes expand the the, the so-called adjacent possible. Your notion of ongoing novelty production to be an interesting one, but I want to lay out like a ramp of just a few more basic ideas from your work before we get into like the really, really gnarly stuff. We're too too late. We're in there with our pith. Right. I just want to say one thing on the intuition because I think like the collective intuition about the nature of these problems has been out there for a really long time. So a lot of this knowledge is old. And I like, and I don't even think about like individuals as really like advancing things. It's just like knowledge on our planet is getting kind of recombined and in different ways. And so, you know, when people tell me that certain ideas about these theories of life resonate with these kind of like more mystical things, it's not surprising to me because we're alive and we're having these experiences. And ultimately, a lot of the experiences of reality might be explainable in terms of some principles that help us, us open up a space that we didn't know was possible. So, so I, I don't think we should discount people's lived experiences or where it's on the boundary of interesting ideas that haven't been sort of through the scientific rigor yet. It's just for me as a scientist, I have to go through that process. And I'm interested in 
solving a very specific problem, which is the origin of life. So you have to like hold yourself to the fire of can you do an experiment? But it's not that I don't understand that it resonates with a lot of things that people have talked about. Yeah. Well, and just to that point, I like thinking about where this community lives in the ecosystem of knowledge production. Yeah. And why it is that SFI is so enamored of other non-scientific domains of arts and culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty well established here that, and I think you're actually doing this in your work. You kind of exist in some way in between these domains where there's artists coming up with the conceptual spaces within which a scientist can then perform rigorous research and that you're kind of emblematic as someone who is actually very comfortable speculating out loud Mm. And showing people the messy, early embryonic stage of an idea when it's actually, in some respects, closer to an artistic exploration than it is to formalizing those ideas mathematically. I want to give you the opportunity to actually stump some of your big ideas. So like, I want to hear you unpack a little bit this idea about an assembly space and causal graphs and download into our listeners, Mm -hmm. please the new operating system whereby you're thinking of living systems as information propagating itself through time in a particular way and structured according to this metric that you and your colleagues have created. Sure. I'm absolutely happy to do that. I'm going to make a quick point just about the deliberateness of experimenting publicly about ideas because I think that's super important because I I think like certain areas that are these really, really big open questions, you want to rapidly proceed on them as fast as possible to solve them. In order to do that, you have to have your ideas as out in the open as possible because that's when you get the feedback to actually see how things are working. So I'm a theoretical scientist. My way of experimenting is actually having these kind of dialogues. So assembly theory, the main sort of conjecture we have is that the universe cannot build complex objects for free. So if you see things that are very complex objects, it's indicative that life was part of the physics that generated it. Now that idea seems maybe kind of simple, but it also kind of, uh, there's There's so much to unpack with it, but I'm going to start with sort of like, how do we actually talk about what we mean by a complex object? And so in assembly theory, it's easiest to think about in an object that you can combinatorially build. So I'm deeply interested in this idea that life is kind of moving through the space of possible things that the universe could build. And it's doing it in this kind of systematic way. And what we're trying to do with assembly theory is talk about how would you build a structure for that space? So you can think about it in terms of a complex object, like a molecule, or if you want, you could think about like, I don't know, a Hogwarts Lego castle. <laughs> so let's take these two objects, a molecule, maybe like Taxol, which is a pretty complicated molecule that's uh, built by chemists in the lab. It's not evolved by biology. And Hogwarts castle. And we take them down to elementary components. So you can either play with Legos or you can play with bonds, depending on your preference. And now you're going to start trying to build up that object again. So we're going to take two pieces and we're going to put them together. And then we're going to take a piece uh, from our elementary building blocks, the individual Legos or the bonds, or a piece that we already built. And we're going to join those two pieces together to try to aim toward building our original object. And eventually by doing this sort of recursive process of taking pieces that have already been built and reusing them, we'll get to the original object. And what we do in assembly theory is basically iterate over all possible ways of doing that. And then we define the object, the molecule, or the Hogwarts castle as an assembly space of all of these causal ways of assembling the object. So this defines sort of the foundations of the theory. The reason this gets to this idea that life might be the only thing that generates complex objects is if you have something like the Hogwarts castle, there will be a shortest path in that space to make that object. And the conjecture of assembly theory is if the shortest path is too long, you're never going to form that object spontaneously. 
It will never form by random chance. It's going to require a system that actually has knowledge about how to build it. So imagine I gave you all the Legos for the Hogwarts. I don't know how many. It's like probably a thousand or so. And I asked you, assemble the Hogwarts castle. (laughs) You already have an idea in mind of the goal, right? So you might have seen the Harry Potter movies or you might have looked at the picture on the box. So you already have a goal in mind and it still would be exceedingly hard for you to build that. So imagine now you had no goal in mind. You're in a non-directed universe, laws of physics. How likely is it for you to assemble that object? Pretty unlikely. If I had given you just two Lego pieces together and I said, could you build this? And you just did it by random configurations of joining any two things from that thing, you'd be pretty likely to hit that object. So this idea that the minimal path, the simplest way shortest sequence of steps is somehow related to a a minimal bound of how hard it is for the universe to produce that object is sort of one of the core tenets that we have in assembly theory. Now this becomes interesting because you can actually relate it to thinking about concepts that we talked about earlier even, this idea that maybe information is really important in what life is doing or causation or evolution and selection. There's all these kinds of words we use to describe certain features of life. And the way we think about it in assembly theory is the universe, so let's go back to the assembly space. Every time I do a disjoining operation, um, you know, there's multiple different ways I could do it. So I have this sort of bifurcating space. So the space actually grows super exponentially of the possible ways of assembly things. So just imagine, I want to define the assembly universe, the space of all possible things that can exist by combinatorially assembling them. That space, if you just try to randomly take things from that space, is super exponential. And this is usually what people try to do when they're talking about novelty generation mechanisms. They don't have any structure to it. So in assembly theory, we say there is a structure. That structure is historically dependent. You can't build something until that piece already existed in the universe in the past. So then you can do this kind of process where you say, maybe I can randomly build up things. And so I'll I'll start assembling things by joining pieces together, and then I'll randomly sample from things that were built in the past. And it turns out that maybe you can build up some assembled objects, but there that space kind of fills out pretty low assembly objects. It, it, it doesn't actually get into the sort of high assembly space. And now let's imagine we have a system that has some knowledge or some information and wants to use specific building blocks. Let's say maybe ones that were recently built in the universe. When we run those kind of dynamical models, we start to see the assembly increase. And so this is sort of one of the reasons that we can actually correlate assembly with this idea that there has been a selection on information or knowledge to assemble that particular object. And so there's a couple of features of this. That that feature of selection was just out in a recent preprint. So Lee Cronin obviously has been really critical in developing assembly theory and had the original idea of thinking about it in molecules. Um, and Daniel and Abhishek are postdoc in my lab and Lee's lab that have been working on this. So, so we basically try to formalize this idea that assembly theory allows us to quantify that selection actually happened in the system and information was acquired. In parallel to that, well, actually, um, before that, there was this paper that came out last year that was an experimental paper that demonstrated that um, because you can measure assembly in molecules, it's an exact theory for molecules. Uh, what do I mean by that? Molecules already are combinatorial objects, right? So chemical space can be built up by basically taking the elements of the periodic table and sticking bonds between them and building up all these possible objects. So if you have your, if you prefer your Lego universe, you can just say, you know, I have a certain set of blocks and there's all the sets of things I can build out of them. The universe gave us that with the periodic table. So assembly theory is super interesting because if you go in the lab and you take an instrument called a mass spec, the fragmentation pattern in this instrument, um, which measures features of the molecule, 
molecule actually is directly correlated with that shortest path. So you can measure assembly index in the lab. And what Lee's lab did was basically show if you measure assembly of molecules across non-living samples, living samples, dead samples, abiotic samples, so like, you know, not involving life at all chemistry, you can show that living systems are the only ones that produce objects above assembly index 15, at least here on Earth. We don't, like, there's there's some subtleties about how universal the number 15 is, and it might have something to do with the structure of the chemical space on Earth. It's kind of like when Jeff West explains why it's a three-quarter power scaling yeah. law in biophysical scaling. It's like, well, why? Oh, it's because it's three dimensions. It's yeah. Like, yeah so, it's an architecture yeah. of the space. Yeah. So in, so assembly can be applied to anything. So I'm also really interested in assembly applied to collective behavior. Like if you look at the space of all possible behaviors, is there some threshold where you say it had to have agency, it had to have information about assembling that particular kind of behavior, mm. kind of set of motion. So we have some anticipation that this threshold that becomes evidence that there was a system that has information or stored memory about specific steps is it might be different in different kinds of projections of reality if you want to think about it that way but we expect there always to be a threshold because if you just imagine that space of all possible things the universe is is building them but it can't there's just too many things to exist to possibly build them and i was always perplexed by this even in small molecule space you know like if you think about like two um, amino acids stuck together i think the estimates are there's like 10 to 60 possible molecules about that size which is more than the universe could possibly produce so the thing that was always sort of paradoxical to me is why some things exist and not others mm-hmm. and the fact that the space of things that can exist is much larger than can be realized but somehow the biosphere seems to be this is the novelty generation thing seems to be creating more kinds of things as it goes and in assembly theory that's very natural because basically the idea is if you're in the low assembly universe very simple objects it's easy to build all of them and the universe can do that pretty much everywhere so elementary particles just get produced they don't require the universe to have any memory to build an elementary particle molecules you know we can we can kind of explore the space and it's kind of this random explosion and you get this problem in prebiotic chemistry that you produce these tars because it's just a mess of molecules because there's just so many that you can make and then somehow biology seems to carve out this trajectory where it starts building more and more and more assembled objects and assembly theory, that's natural to see because you're basically taking pieces that were built before and saying that there's a physical system that uses those to build things. That physical system is persisting in time, so those that use is persisting in time. And then you can use that to build up more complex structures, and you get this really different kind of trajectory through what exists where now you're starting to get into the high assembly universe. So imagine the entire space of all things that exist stacked by this minimal number of steps. So the first minimal number of steps is the minimal amount of time it takes for the universe to be possibly be able to encounter that object and then you organize existence by this kind of your readers will probably be familiar with the idea of coarse graining right so coarse graining we do in thermodynamics like we say we don't care about the specific motion of every particle in a gas we care about the average motion and we define something called temperature in assembly theory you coarse grain reality the reality relevant to life which is the space of what can exist uh, by assembly index, which stacks things by the minimal time to produce them. And then we have another one, which is copy number, which is how many of that object have been produced. That feature is also really important because it might be possible for this, you know, the universe to generate one novel object, but to get multiple copies of an object 
seems to suggest that the knowledge has staying power, that there's actually a physical system that knows how to build that thing and has functional use for it. A good example is Edison's invention of the light bulb. He went through like 100 tries, right? And, you know, the first 99 light bulbs were not useful. And so they maybe, you know, they had a finite lifetime in the universe. They were produced and then they, they weren't mass produced. But, you know, now we have millions of light bulbs on the planet um, that were the final design. There's variations of them. So they're kind of slightly, you know, they're very similar in their assembly structure, but they're not identical, but they have this sort of same role. And then you can think about this copy number being evidence that there is now a process that knows how to build them and learn how to build them. So a couple things there. And yeah, that was a lot. Sorry. No, no, it's great. It's great. There's a tree of possible conversations we can have from here. And a large we'll assembly a, space. We'll only get to a few of them, but that's a reason to keep talking. So um, one of those things that I want to focus on is this issue of the shortest path, mm-hmm. right? Because elsewhere you've said, you know, you're thinking about it. What was it? You, you and Lee were talking about shortest path versus average path. Yeah, everybody asks us. Yeah, that's okay. So this is an everybody asks it question on the show, unfortunately. No, no, it's a good question. <laughs> and I think it's one that needs to be repeatedly asked because it's a very subtle distinction. Yeah. So the answer that the two of you gave to that question, mm-hmm. I'm sort of jumping the gun, but just so, you, yeah. you know, so that we can walk through in that particular door was it struck me that the difference is uh, like a nature nurture difference. Oh, interesting. So that like, yeah, yeah. Like stop me if I'm no, no, encoding no, I you wrong, no, no. but that the idea was that in the way that I guess, you know, it's just like agents take least effort paths through systems mm-hmm. and this kind of thing. You know, evolution is lazy, these kinds of yeah. ideas. You would expect that whatever you're observing is representative of the shortest path, but that because it's not emerging in isolation, it's emerging in an ecosystem of interactions, then in practice, you're not necessarily looking at something that was assembled by the shortest path. Right. Almost uh, never will you. Yeah. So yeah, I'd love for you to kind of... Yeah. So assembly spaces are large. So I came across this after we developed these ideas in assembly theory, but I really like this idea of a hyper object. Timothy Morton. We yeah. bring it up on the show all the time. Yeah. It's it. such a great concept, but like an assembly space is a hyper object. And so the interesting thing is it's basically saying that all things that life has produced are hyper objects that have a very complex structure in time. And that's a physical attribute of the object. So the analogy I like to make is you can't fit a Mack truck in a garage. And some objects are just too large in time to exist until you have enough time for them to exist. They have a physical extent in time. And so that assembly index is kind of like a measure of the minimal size of an object in time. And the reason that we take that huge space of all these pathways, because time is very complex in an object, an object, a, a biologically evolved object is basically a complex bundle of all the ways the universe could create it across all the possible timelines, if you want to think about it that way. So that's kind of like you know, that's what assembly theory would say, like you and I are, <laughs> we're all the ways the universe could build us. Um, and we happen to exist in certain places in the universe because we're constrained by the things that can co-assemble with us. So in the space of all possible existence, maybe I only exist here because I really am that uniquely constrained or maybe not. But the, <laughs> yeah, that's an, actually an interesting question in assembly theory. So that this is where it gets exciting because there's these kinds of questions you couldn't ask before. But this feature of the shortest path is super important because for complex objects like that space is exponentially growing with the assembly index of the or or even maybe larger than exponentially growing with the shortest path in the space but 
all the information we need to construct the theory is actually in the shortest path. We don't have to know about all the paths or some statistical distribution of paths. We only have to know about the shortest path. And that's very significant for molecules because you can measure the shortest path and it's an exact observable of a molecule. So it's like electrons might have tons of properties, but you build a lot of theories about electrons based on their mass, their electric charge, and their spin, right? Because those are the physically relevant variables that we found are good compressions for measuring experiments and building theories that are predictive. In assembly theory, the assembly index is something we can measure. It has a real physical meaning with respect to that object in terms of the minimal time that the universe needs to produce that object. And um, and it allows us to basically, like I said, coarse grain reality, <laughs> assembled reality in this really interesting way. Now, if you were doing the average path, you'd get some kind of like other weird stuff. It's, it's just like, it's just not conceptually clean. Now, the thing is, as you said, when an object comes to exist in the universe, it's almost never by the shortest path. And in fact, it might not even be an assembly path at all that you actually observe it because assembly paths are like at very low levels of reality. So just to give an example, in assembly theory for molecules, we use bonds and we join bonds together to make steps in the assembly pathway. But a lot of things we produce are things that are never observed. They're fragments of molecules or not whole molecules. Assembly steps don't correspond to reactions. And the conjecture there is what a reaction is, is just a very high level coarse graining of an assembly space. And this idea actually comes from Lee. He's got this idea of the origin of chemical reactions. Like you take two assembly molecules, they have a very large assembly space, and you interact them. What defines what features of the assembly space get retained in what you produce? What defines that is the constructor for that transformation or the other physical object that set the boundary conditions for that interaction. So in chemistry, that could be a chemical catalyst. It could be a round bottom flask. For you and I, it could be, you know, sort of this, the context of the features of this room is, you know, defining a part in our, our history. of So... Cathedral design. Yes, exactly. Big, yeah. yeah. So this becomes important because the things that we observe as the actual trajectories that produce things are not always directly related to the features of the assembly space that underlie the theory. That would be some coarse-grained representation of the theory. And um, and also because of this co-assembly, like, you know, most of the time we discover things, it's like these pieces were put together. They're not necessarily at all the shortest path. And that's okay because the universe is just generating structures and it doesn't know how to build them when they're first generated. It has to learn how to build them. And that learning process might make the path shorter over time. Maybe that's a signature of intelligence, right? But it doesn't need to be the case that the actual ways we build things, what we observe in terms of like a statistical ensemble of ins- assembled objects, those could be different features of the assembly space as far as the the mechanism of formation, then what we need to measure is an intrinsic property of the object independent of where you find it in the universe. This is super important for the alien det- life detection issue, right? So we want to use assembly theory as a biosignature. Now, if we were using average path or constraints based on the environment, then we would have an observable that changed with planetary environment. And if you want to go from measuring signatures of life on Earth, say molecules that are assembled more than 15 steps, and now we want to go to Enceladus with a mass spec, we need something that's an objective property of the molecule independent of what environment it's in. So it has to have this intrinsic property. But all these extrinsic features are also important for thinking about the dynamics in assembly spaces. But when you're talking about the fundamental objects of the theory, the shortest path is really significant for that reason. Yeah, not that I'm adding anything especially profound here, but just because I love, as I spend more time here, starting to grasp and familiarize myself with 
these kinds of leaps. Again, for folks that are not just like already inundated in coarse-grained theoretical thinking, mm-hmm. the connection here is is very much akin to what we're, I was talking about when we had Jeff West on the show. And he said, yeah, 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 yeah. Like actually almost no, no animals actually fall on the line of this three-quarter power scaling law. And it's the deviations that make them interesting, yeah. right? And it's to a point you said earlier in the conversation, which was effectively a paraphrase of Gregory Bateson's information is yeah. the difference that makes a difference. Right. Which brings me to, and, and I am jumping over an enormous amount of interesting stuff in your astrobiological research to get here, but we can circle back. The paper that you wrote with Adam Frank and David Grinspoon on planet scale intelligence, mm-hmm. because your work charges head on, like spear down at this really, really vexing puzzle that I, I just love staring into the abyss of, which, and I was just telling our, our journalism fellow, Laura Spinney uh, here today, that I think one of the interesting things is how many paths up the metaphorical mountain at SFI from totally different research trajectories make it to this what is effectively almost a spiritual question, which is how can we think formally about the issue of the detection of intelligence is vastly alien to our mm-hmm. own. And you don't have to look into exoplanets no, you to don't. probe this, like the issue of whether our own civilization, whether our own biosphere are demonstrating what we would understand as, as this is, is interesting. And just to like kind of, plug a few more wires into earlier parts of this conversation. You've said elsewhere that we have no way to communicate with aliens unless there's an overlap in the causal graph. Mm-hmm. Like it, we have to be similar enough to them or we have to expand our senses in the way you, you know you talk about, you know, we couldn't detect gravity waves until we invented the observatory capable mm-hmm. of detecting them. Which uh, required knowledge. Right. There's something very, like the more you know, the less you know. Mm-hmm. And then finally you've emptied yourself <laughs> of you know your assumptions enough to see what's been in front of your face the whole time and this gets interesting around you call it the great perceptual filter I don't, yes. is that your term yes okay so yeah so this you brought this up in the community lecture and I, I loved this that it may not be that our inability to spot extraterrestrial civilizations is because they're not there it's that we're just kind of too dumb to, yeah. to know what we're looking at. I wouldn't call it dumb. Okay. Just, yeah. yeah, we haven't acquired the knowledge. <laughs> Fair. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Ignorant, maybe, but not unintelligent. Yeah. Right, right. In that right. sense. Um, I'm a positivist, though. Yeah. But, you know, it's like the old theological question of, well, if this being is smarter mm-hmm. than you, how would you ever know unless it wants you to see it? Right. And then there's like that Michael Lockman and uh, Mark Newman and, and Chris Moore wrote that paper on the physical limits of communication. Yep. Okay. That's one vortex that right. you might want to guide us through. Right. And then choose your own adventure. There's this whole other track, which is this track about the way that you're thinking about time. And maybe these two things join. They're all the same. Right. So <laughs> we talk about time as like the ordering of events and as i understand it like what you're describing is when i hear you talking about the super exponential growth of the space of the possible Mm -hmm. it reminds me of a talk that i'll link to in the show notes vijay balasubramanian gave last year on why black holes eat information Mm. and he's talking about how technically yes a black hole will eventually evaporate and you can get the stuff back out. Right. But in order to do that, you would need a black hole bigger than our universe <laughs> in order to run the computation yeah. or you would need to right. wait longer than the right. life of our universe. And so there's this thing about like, I wonder if the perceived 
arrow of time, the experience of the arrow of time. And, you know, Sean Carroll has talked about, about this stuff relatedly in ways that I failed to fully grasp. I'll give you the ball and see what you can do. For it. Sure. But then like, it seems like maybe the difference is more to do with not an objective asymmetry in time per se, so much as like a growing gap between what is possible and what actually is that's just opening in what we think of as forward. Yeah. Or what most cultures think of as forward. It's like maybe the future is already there and we're just struggling to extract meaningful information from it. Well, I think lots of features of the future already exist. So I will will address all your things sort of backwards in time. So we'll start with time and then we can talk about great filters and intelligence and then we'll get to planetary intelligence. Perfect. Okay, cool. So I think there's this kind of conception. Well, in physics, time doesn't exist in some sense. It's like an emergent property. And so then everything exists. And then the statement that you're saying that maybe the future already exists is kind of a trivial statement because, you know, there's no sense of time in kind of the, the structure of physics. And the way we talk about things in assembly theory, it's like time is the most fundamental thing because things actually have an ordering in a sense of time. I mean, you might think of it as a partial ordering, but some things cannot exist until other things have existed. And that might be because they require an object that has some knowledge about the constraints um, to assemble them. I'm saying knowledge like an abstract thing, but I think mm-hmm. I should point out that assembly theory makes information physical in the sense that it assumes that each of these steps is actually another physical object constraining the structure of the steps. So mm-hmm. it's just objects building objects. But the way we abstract that in assembly theory is just to talk about an object that was built and the fact that that's evidence that you have this whole chain of things co-constraining themselves. So what ends up happening with that is time has this directionality. You can talk about objects being larger in time than other objects. I love the way Michael Lachman says he's 3.8 billion years old, you know, and I think that's really characteristic. So then from that perspective, you start to have to have this view of the universe where the universe has a directionality to it and the past is different than the future because the future is assembled from the current moment. And this is the feature I find most interesting is as you're building up an assembly space, like you're getting into higher and higher assembly index structures, they are larger, not just in depth and time, but also in the size of the space. So the past is actually getting bigger in assembly theory as a function of building up things. Now, the co-constraints on that assembly space make it look like there's a more and more specific past trajectory that had to be there to build all the things. But the amount of knowledge in the system in terms of all the fragments in the assembly space that may or may not have been built in the past is kind of latent knowledge in all the objects that exist. Mm. We use some parts of the assembly space to build things, but we're also acquiring all, like there's so much structure in the space of a molecule that we don't use to assemble other molecules. And there's so much structure in the space of a human being that's like, you know, like, I mean, like, think of all the ideas you have that you can't get out of yourself, right? And like, yeah, so so just think every complex object is like this high dimensional structure that exists across all these possible histories. And not all the histories are actually coincident with things that actually other things would agree are even existing yet. So the way I think about it, sort of the wave front of what gets assembled in the future is there's some kind of statistical distribution over the likelihood of things existing based on how much of the assembly space of the things that exist right now, you can find that feature. So some things are very likely to exist in the future and some things are not, but they might be pulled more into existence as a function of time. 
So that's sort of, for me, this process of the generative mechanism. And it's very much sort of against standard physics, but not incompatible with it. Because you can think about for low assembly objects, like I had said before, it's easy for the universe to produce them. So it's easy to see how they don't exist in time because the universe can assemble them or disassemble them at will. They're just like these very simple objects or, you know, like they're always generated. Whereas these high assembled objects start to reveal that there is a directionality in time because you can assemble them one way, but there needs to be physical objects to maybe, you know, take them apart in another way. And I like the way that Chiara Marletto talks about this with her, her thinking and constructor theory is reversibility is an emergent property because it requires a physical system that does the forward process and the backward process. And the way I think about it is the universe is always moving forward in time. When we see things that are reversible, that's a little bit of anomaly because that means that we have a physical system that knows how to build it in both directions. Okay, so where do time crystals fit into this? Oh, I think they're they're kind of interesting because yeah. they come up in standard physics and they're this kind of idea of repeatability in time. And I think they're kind of an interesting window into like where physics, the standard physics kind of peeks into this other sort of dimension of time. But assembly theory says something very different because it's now assigning the attribute of time as a physical feature of some matter. And this is where it gets to answering some of the paradoxes of information for me personally. So I was mentioning before when you're talking about top-down causation, this idea that information is this causal category. What it looks like in assembly theory is some objects are deeper in time, and those are objects that are highly informational because they have a very deep history of things building them, but they also have this much larger structure. So it's sort of like what we see as these abstractions is actually that these objects are very deeply embedded in time. And it looks very abstract to us, like it can hop between these things, because actually what we're seeing is it's hopping between a shared causal structure very deep in the history of those common objects. And so it exists as a feature of both those objects. It's just not apparent on the surface because it's somewhere in that giant assembly graph. And then it's like, this is the feature that makes them a hyper object. So words, for example, look like they hop between all of us. But of course, we have a shared common causal history that allows us to understand what those words are. And that's a feature of our assembly space. So this gets to the point, like communicating with aliens, unless you have shared common features, it's impossible for me to even think about what information would be. unless. So information to me is just indication that there's a common feature deep in the assembly space. And those two objects actually share a common physical structure in time. Can I dogleg out here? Because I feel like there is a very profound adjacent and uh, troubling philosophical question that I know you have an opinion on, which is plausibility of uploading a human being. Oh, sure. Right. Because, okay, so like I am right there with you as far as like the materiality of ideas, Mm -hmm. right? We need to be able to talk about, I don't know, I'm personally devoted to pursuing the hypothesis that for every experience, there is a description somehow. Mm -hmm. And for every description, there's an experience. And these first and third person methodologies correlate everywhere we can look for them. So you're talking about ideas having like a substance, you know, which again, to point to mystical precursors is is actually something that Vedanta, you know, they talk about this. But then it gets weird when you get into the way that what Yuval Harari calls the new religion of Silicon Valley thinks about this, about the human being as an algorithmic creature and the way that that's been taken by cybernetic totalists to mean that this is just nothing but code. In a weird way, it's like a consequence of thinking like Star Trek transporters or something. You can just break a person down and build them back up over here. Mm -hmm. But I always had a problem with two things about that. I'm curious your stance on that before we plug back into this stuff. One is, even if you were to copy yourself, you still get a unique instance of yourself. 
But the other thing is kind of related to the question of is free will just something that emerges from like the way that we course screen yeah. things? At what point does the algorithm by which you encode a person give you something that sounds like a, a lousy MP3? Yeah, it might be a projection in some of the ways that you are a human, but maybe not all the ways. Right. Yeah. Right. So is it just that right now we're not capable of porting an entire person like we deport yeah. words from written right. speech to, right. you know? I mean, I've always felt uncomfortable with the simulation argument because I don't like the sort of separation. It gets back to this idea of thinking that things that we have, we view as abstract or physical, right? So for, you know, most of human history, there has been the separation of the physical world from like the platonic world. And even in theoretical physics, we do this because we assume the laws of physics exist outside of the universe and they're not an emergent property of the universe they describe. So I'm always kind of like vexed when Mikio Kakao is like the God equation. It describes everything, but it doesn't describe itself, right? right? So there's this issue that in physics you have to have an initial condition and a law of motion and then so you need an external programmer to generate the whole universe right and because that's so deeply embedded in the laws of physics and their structure without people thinking about the fact that you need an external programmer for the laws of physics as they're written down now people seem to be okay with this idea that things can exist outside of the universe and have some kind of autonomous existence and because that's so associated to what we think mathematics is and therefore algorithms and software that's built from the foundations of mathematics into trying to think about how to reason in mathematical structures. We think those things exist autonomous from a physical substrate. But the problem is that those things are the physical substrate. So I do have this thought that like maybe mystics have been talking about for centuries, but the way it was told to me that I thought was kind of the most interesting perception of it was actually by Simon Saunders, who's a philosopher at Oxford. You know, we're having this conversation about it. It was like pointing out that the way I think about it is like people think math describes physics, and then I'm trying to make math a category of physics. Like somehow they're the same thing, but then what do you describe that by? Because you always get into these meta levels. But I really do think that we're missing a key component because I don't think mathematics exists autonomous to the universe. I don't think anything does. I don't think the laws of physics do. I think the universe is assembling itself. It's basically constructing itself. And then this raises a whole set of other questions because it does make you ask questions about what are the limitations about being able to copy something we think is an abstraction from one system to another. So is mathematics itself universal? Would aliens describe the same mathematics or not? Or is mathematics just a language we think is really powerful because it's like very deep in our assembly branch? It's like it universally describes everything we interact with so it's the deepest branching structures and I, I think yeah I'm not being very articulate at this point but I think you know what I mean I always thought math was a kind of information because it has the same properties as words it hops between physical systems and it seems to retain its properties but the reason we assign so much power to it is because it's easy to not misinterpret a mathematical statement it is very easy to misinterpret a linguistic statement and so math seems to have this seeming autonomy but it's not autonomous it has to be physically instantiated so just out of curiosity, if we have time, we will make it back. But We're going to get there. We'll get there. But this question of extent in space versus extent in time mm -hmm. is just interesting. I'd love to yeah. dig with that a little more because my understanding of at least the way that Tim Morton came up with this idea of hyperobjects is like they say time is emitted by objects in a way. Oh, interesting. That feels non-physical to me, that articulation. Yeah, but, but it, was, okay. it was an attempt to reconcile relativity yeah. and informationally symmetries between mm -hmm. objects. And I think they were trying to go for like a kind of a quantum gravity thing yeah. where the gravitational relationship is just simply due to the fact that you're 
informationally smart. Yeah, I totally understand that sort of train of thought because I've done a lot of relativistic assembly spaces in my mind and there's something funky going on with relativity that doesn't really quite work. But I, I wouldn't be able to talk about That's something I should talk about for like five years. I can't. Yeah, I in five but, years, maybe you can answer for me yeah. if there really is something deep and general about the analogy, the way that people talk about urbanization as mm-hmm. if people were being sucked into a black hole, as if there's a sort of density of information yeah. that draws people into it. I think as the world becomes more complex, there's certainly bounds on what you can know about other systems that are growing. This is a, a really hard thing for, I have a, a very clear visual in my brain that's very hard for me to articulate. But maybe like a better way of sort of thinking about it is like in some sense, it's like a black hole is sort of like the extinction of information. Like when it evaporates, it's, you know, like we think about it as extinction of information. Maybe you could recover it. We also have extinction events on Earth where we lost a lot of information in biology, right? Like mass extinctions. And they have this really interesting because you've just lost this whole set of histories from the universe. So I think that feature is interesting with respect to this. But then also when you're thinking about... I'm a huge assembly space. You're a huge assembly space. Like how much possible overlap could you have with another object as they get bigger and bigger and also are interacting with all these other objects in your environment that I think as the world becomes more information rich and complex, we're seeing so much stuff that's deeper and deeper in time. And then some of that stuff is just like the horizon of what you can see in time is really hard to to put bounds on. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can. Uh, yeah, this is. Let's put a pin in this. Yeah, it's a pin. Um, We'll get another chance. Yeah, no, this is good. I'm glad you're pushing me on that. I had like, I had some really interesting thoughts on like this whole structure that you're asking about in Iceland last year. And I still haven't really been able to like get to a place where I can talk about it in a way that is comprehensible. But I think that's also good, you know, for listeners, because it's a whole idea of like actively doing science in front of people. And like, ideas take so much time to develop. Like, even if you like have the, like, I mean, people know this being creative. It's like, I know what I'm trying to do, but like, I can't do it yet. We, We might get some arm chair philosophy emails from this conversation yeah. but I'm, I'm here for it yeah uh, so i want to get back in the time that we have i want to get back to the effort that you and your colleagues have made to help carry the baton forward in this conversation around planet scale yeah yeah and i just want to start by backing up to the statement that you made earlier about how you can't fit a mac truck in a garage right because here's the problem right is like if you're talking about the assembly space of collective behavior there's a clear through line there and since like you said we have to dig deeper in order to see further yes that would mean you know like the more alien something is the lower the chances are of us noticing it we've already established this but it really puts the challenge to us to figure out my friend of mine put thusly, she was like, if I were a super intelligent alien race and I were mm-hmm. trying to decide whether I wanted to communicate with another civilization, I would look to see whether they had managed to communicate with another species on their own planet. Right, first. right. You know, and that's yeah. like sort of reversing the, yeah, yeah. the narration there. But yeah. I want to give you the chance to talk about how you and, and Frank and Grinspoon thought about this immensely difficult challenge of identifying when a planet has become technological and how and if that would suggest that this thing has sort of like 
awoken yeah. as a mind of, in its own right. Right. So that was a super fun collaboration. I love working with Adam and David. And the three of us came to the same kind of interest in this from really different perspectives. And I think David Grinswood, I've been thinking about for a really long time, you know, proposing this idea of the sapiozoic, as he calls it, I think, which is like, <laughs> yeah. And I, I love his, like, the Anthropocene started with, like, the first footprint on the moon because that's a geological artifact on the moon now, right? Of course, like, some teenager might ruin it someday if we have like space colonization or something but. guaranteed but um it'll be under its own dome i know exactly so i think the thing for me that was always super interesting is this idea that we're going to build ai and control all the boundary conditions so this like there's this vision of like some lab is going to build artificial intelligence in a box and I just, that never worked for me. For the same reason, we're not going to solve the origin of life in an over-engineered box. So people don't actually realize how much agency we have and how much of that information that's been propagating on our planet forever goes into the design of everything that we do. Um, and AI are already kind of alive in some sense because they're part of our biological lineage, like even the things we're building now. And an origin of life experiment is also part of our biological lineage. It's a product of biology. It's, it's an example of life. So it kind of bothered me from that perspective because most of the things where you see real intelligence emerge and you see things with causal power that are assembling the future, they're much more what we talk about in complex systems theory, like a complex emergent phenomena. So I always just had this idea that like artificial general intelligence would emerge out of planetary scale technology like a global brain, maybe if you want to think about it that way. But our machines are talking to each other more and more. And we don't know like if there's some features of that process that are now becoming intelligent in their own way. And the way David was thinking about it is that there has to be some transition where some kind of global scale intelligence emerges that could be self-regulating, you know, especially with respect to climate change and things that would actually enter these sort of like guy in feedback loops and make the planet self-sustaining with technology. And so this was the thing that Adam and David and I all sort of were mutually interested in. And the idea is why this relates to looking for extraterrestrial life. Is this a critical phase transition that happens in all planets that evolve intelligence? Because ultimately, if you think about life as a planetary scale phenomena, intelligence also has to become a planetary scale phenomena. And it might be a critical transition for the long-term sustainability of life on a planet, especially when it becomes technological life. So that becomes very relevant for thinking about what kind of alien intelligences do we want to look at out there. Maybe they will always be these globally integrated systems. So that's sort of the broad set of ideas. I have lots of ways I think about that in terms of how we think more fundamentally about these theories of life and assembly theory and things like that that are not like apparent in sort of the discussion. But I think that's sort of like the critical, interesting feature. And then the question is, are we at the precipice of that? And do we need to help mediate that transition? Because that actually is critical for long-term sustainability. Because if you have a whole bunch of agents like individual humans or governments or corporations that are acting independently and don't have these larger scale systems that are self-regulating them, are they just going to be basically killing each other off because there's not, not sort of some mass cooperation? And then it becomes, it's interesting to me, I also read this um, like sort of short paper a couple years before this with Hikaru Furukaro, who's actually here this week too, because she's one of the students at the Santa Fe School called Major Transitions in Planetary Evolution. And the whole idea was like, we have major transitions in evolution. Major transitions in planetary evolution is kind of a play on the idea that some of the major transition evolution should really be thought of at planetary scale phenomena. So the origin of life itself was probably planetary scale phenomena, or at least that's how I feel about it. And then so like, you know, some of the, each time you see these kind of major shifts, there's some new globally integrated system that emerges. And certainly we can see that with like the globalization of the internet and things like that. And so the question is, is like this sort of a major transition in planetary evolution, if you think about life as a planetary scale phenomena. 
Well, I mean, the one I love going back to just because I'm an Age of Dinosaurs guy is <laughs> the coevolution of social insects and flowering plants yes. completely reshaping yes. the surface of right. you know, the entire terrestrial surface of right. the planet. And so, yeah, you use Anthropocene kind of thinking to as a lever into deep time. And then you get into questions that I, you know, I talked about with Olivia Judson, I know for sure, way back on, I think it was like episode eight of this show, where... We're talking about how really the great oxidation event, cyanobacteria, that was like industrial pollution, yeah. you know, that caused like a proto mass extinction. And we talked about that actually also with Ming-Jen Liu about mm-hmm. the way that evolution continues to identify opportunities and close material and energetic loops, you know, like the way that trees used to just sit on the ground undigested by yeah. fungi. It's really weird to think. Anyway, I want to pick out a strand of what you just said and emphasize it, magnify it, which is that in talking about the biosphere emerging from the geosphere and then the technosphere emerging from the biosphere, we can't necessarily assume that just because someone is geoengineering means that we're seeing the evidence of a planet-scale intelligence at work. Right. That this is not necessarily... like no. That could be executive brain function of some kind. Right. Or it could be cancer. Right. And that like there's Michael Lockman's work on the economy of cancer in yeah. the body is really interesting because now we're talking about... I mean, we're, we're basically giving an unsolicited plug to Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry <laughs> for the Future and yeah. how like we look at the burgeoning global brain or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And right now it just looks like the messy everyone stepping on each other's causal toes. Right. So, so that's not enough. Simply identifying that there are like... There's, hey, there's a grid of clouds on this. You know, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and it's a punt of a question. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, I'd love to hear you pick out a little bit more in terms of the formalism. Because again, you're talking about using mass spec to perceive changes in the atmospheric balances of other planets. And right. So that's when, yeah, when it's associated life. I guess for me, so there's this transition so we talk about in terms of planetary intelligence now we're talking about the transition from the geosphere to the biosphere to the technosphere recognizing there's some fundamental differences between those and some new sorts of structures have to emerge to make those sustainable over time right and i think the thing that for me is you know i've always been interested in most of my career in the non-life life transition so geosphere to having a biosphere um, but the biosphere to technosphere, you can ask questions, does that introduce anything new or is that just layers of elaboration on things? And I think the feature there that's super interesting for me is, especially thinking in this sort of assembly theoretic way, is that when biology is building up more things over time and inventing you know, novel organisms and chemistries and things over biological evolution, it's kind of innovating based on the past history of what's happened on the planet. So it's kind of a, like a localized kind of information because it's like it's remembering things. But when you get to things that are like, our level of intelligence, imagination becomes really important in the sense that it's not like like when humans generate things, it's not just that those things, maybe we obviously have to use features of reality that do exist, but we can imagine things that have never existed and actually build them. One of my favorite examples is like, you know, the threads through human history of the idea of rockets before we actually were able to build them. And, you know, there's a pretty deep structure there where we were kind of like loosely aware such things could exist, but it unfolded over time. 
what's interesting to me about that is that's already clearly a collective property of humans over time. And I think what's happening now with this sort of the idea of planetary intelligence or this technological transition is some of those features are now happening in machines, right? And some of the imagination or some of the things that are going to be generated in the future, the threads of how those things are assembled across time are distributed between biological things and technological things and that means that structure is much larger because you have many more complex objects in that space and so the possibility space is much larger of what things can be generated in the future and there's probably some critical transition where the horizon of what can actually happen is much larger I don't know if that's at all related to the idea of a singularity or something I think it's a totally different concept but the same kind of idea that there's a an interesting horizon we hit because of the size of those systems and how much history they can carry with them and presumably for me, that would be the interesting structure to look at to try to quantify when when does the system become intelligent in a way that it's self-sustaining at that scale. Because right now there's a lot of structures emerging in technology and like they're not going to persist for thousands and thousands of years. But a planetary intelligence would have an architecture that would be as long lived as the interior of the ribosome, for example. We don't have that technology yet. We don't think on long time scales for our technology, but that might be critical for planetary intelligence because it certainly was critical for the biosphere to persist as long as it has. Yes. And with that, I want to anticipate and address a question that it seems like people love to ask <laughs> in conversations about this kind of thing, sure. which are, you know, again, sort of related to a thread that we've been playing with this whole conversation, which is the question of like with math, created or discovered, mm -hmm. right? right? Like, do we get to take credit for this emerging guy in mind? To what degree are we responsible for it? Because there is this sense like you, you brought up earlier about latent yeah. intelligence and right. you know the way in which in some sense, in hindsight, it seems like, oh yeah, all the pieces were there in hindsight abiogenesis is like, well, what are the odds? Well, one of one. Like it was, the stuff was <laughs> You can always post-select and make sure things happen, sure. And, yeah. and th that gets weird. And we tend to do that, yeah. Not to just totally dogleg, but then you get into that John Wheeler and experiments in quantum yep. post-selection. Right, right. Again. I wrote a paper on quantum post-selection Did once, you? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, okay, so so I know that after your community lecture, I brought up uh, super determinism or retrocausality. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I know you knew I was leading the witness earlier in this conversation by asking you, do you think the future right. kind of already exists? Exists, but well, I think features of the immediate future have quite a bit of existence now, and features of the long-term future already have some existence. Mm. There's a very strong correlation there between what will be built in the future and what exists now. But the thing about this temporal thing, it was an earlier comment you made just in that I, I wanted to go back to. I don't remember exactly what you said, but I was thinking about the nature of the individual. Mm. And like what we don't think about is an individual is an instance of a lineage. And I, I love the way Michael talks about this too, is like all life is just lineages of propagating and information. And we have a, like sort of a very precise way of talking about that in assembly theory. But if you think about it from that perspective and you're thinking about the future technology, do we take credit for it? It's just part of our lineage. So I, I don't think it's like a, oh, we designed or we invented this, like, look, look at us, we're so smart. You know, I had this really interesting, very visceral interaction with one of these humanoid robots, you know, they walk. And it's just like, when you look at it, it's almost like you're looking in the future. Like, uh -huh. this is not my child. I have real biological children, but this is a progeny of 
human creativity and ingenuity. Hans Moravec's Mind Children. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, it was very funny because I said, it, you know, you can learn more from a baby than a 90-year-old on Lex's podcast. And a lot of people like really took offense to that. But what I meant by that is you're looking at someone that's in the future. Like if I think about the life that a child now will live, I mean, it's just a totally different life, right? And it's almost like all the objects that exist in the future, the way I think about it is like they have a higher assembly index than I do. <laughs> so they're like a much more complex thing. So I guess that's sort of like what I see when I look around me is that structure unfolding over time it's like you don't you never interact with an object in an instant you're interacting with something that's extended across time and there's so many interesting ways of thinking about the world that we interact with when we start to realize that and I think that's actually more kind of where I was going with that question which is about the developmental history of this thing rather or you know like the deep embryogenesis of this what you say in the paper is the inherently global nature of the complex networked feedbacks which occur in the biosphere may itself imply the operation of an ancestral planetary intelligence. Yes. So that's what I meant is sort of like it begs the question of, okay, so let's say that we actually succeed in getting through this mess and having a mature technosphere. Well, we were just a, a moment yes. in the establishment we're all just of moments. that thing, right? And so it had like... But pieces of us will last yeah. a very long time. <laughs> you know, like the question of how far back we can identify intelligent behavior at the at the level of that whole is really Right. So I think in some ways I don't make a distinction between intelligence and life. Yeah. Because a lot of people think with intelligence is associated with creativity. It's associated with novelty. And I think when we're talking about life, I like some of the ways I talk about it is like life is the physics of existence. It's like the actual literal mechanism the universe has for generating structure and generating complex structure. And from that perspective, there's not really a distinction at this really deep fundamental level between what you want to say is a living process versus an intelligent process. And in some ways, maybe it's the level of steering of that process because intelligence seems to have this ability. Maybe this gets your free will. We didn't talk about free will, but you dimension yeah. it in passing. How determined is it by the fact that I'm an intelligent agent? Like it seems to be that I have a lot more options of behaviors I can exhibit than a bacterium. And maybe free will comes into the fact that I can choose among that set of behaviors. And that's sort of like my freedom. So that you, but I actually think free will is a real thing because I just think every, every object is an assembly space and its whole causal structure is assembling the future. So it's, it's a, like the causation is a localized thing to that structure and how it interacts with other objects. Mm. And I think there's something interesting about free will that if you think that the universe is trying to maximize creativity, which is a big if, but like that there's some maximizing existence, like the number of things that can exist is kind of a directionality principle. It kind of goes with like maximum entropy theories of ecology. Yeah. Then free will is kind of interesting in that because if you have all your like physical systems have free will, so they kind of make decisions independent of each other um, and maybe a little bit independent of their past history. There's some stochasticity. Then that ma- then there's more possibilities for the future. So I really, I, I really think like creativity and free will and the ways we talk about them are not correct, but there are some interesting features of the ways that we talk about them collectively as a society that tie very deeply to fundamental natures of what life or intelligence might be in the universe. And that there might be some way of confirming some of our intuition about the fact that we feel like we have free will. I do think we do, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, you know, it was that Richard Doyle in his book, Darwin's Pharmacy talks about evolution as an algorithm for optimizing coverage of, of a search space mm-hmm. of pos- biological possibility. I mean, that's right. That's very much in keeping with. Yeah. The way yeah. This idea comes up. It, it's like a lit motif in modern society. It's just like, yeah. it's everywhere. So, yeah. Okay. I know you got, a meeting with Chris Kempis in just like a few minutes. So there's like one more, there's like 19 sure. more questions I have for you. But the one that I want to end with is <laughs> it's like soft 
because we didn't actually get to this and and i want to ask you you've said you had this thought experiment that maybe the, you said you, i don't like this idea oh, i don't yeah, agree with yeah. it but maybe the fact that life on earth has evolved is somehow hogging mm-hmm. possibility resources yeah. like the, the possibility itself is a resource that can have scarcity right yeah this thought of like we don't realize what the externalities that we're producing right and then this question of like well how would we know maybe resource competition is such that abiogenesis is happening all the time on this planet right and it's just getting eaten before we find it like right. these kinds of questions are really interesting and it's just like a dark weird place for us to yeah. leave this hanging but i'd love yeah. to hear you riff on that for a well while. on the abiogenesis happening all the time actually i just had a conversation with michael and chris about this yesterday you know we're interested in the chemical origins of life right because that's sort of the first example of, like of origins of life and i always think about chemistry is the first scale of reality like if you're thinking about building up from like simplest possible building blocks you have you know quarks and you build protons and neutrons and things and then they build atoms and atoms build molecules molecules are first one where the space is too large that all possible things couldn't exist even in principle because of resource constraints so there's an interesting reason for thinking about the origin of life at the scale and also we think origins of life on earth was a chemical origin of life but it doesn't mean that the process that we call the origin of life hasn't happened subsequently. And I think Chris and David have this whole multiple The multiple life. paths to yeah, multiple life. And, and I think that. that that's sort of a recurrent theme through a lot of those of us that work in this area, that when we're talking about the origin of life, it's such a general phenomenon that we might, and life is a much more general phenomenon. So when I talk about what I think life is, I think life is everything from an original life event on, subsequently cascading building structure across time. And it's that entire space-time structure that we might call an example of life. So it's a, it's a huge structure across, right? And so there might be all these times you get these like major branching patterns might be what you might want to call an original life event. And so that gets interesting from the experimental science perspective because, as I mentioned, like experiments are life. So what you want to do when you're trying to generate de novo life in the lab is control for as much of the information from your lineage not getting in that experiment as possible and know exactly how much you put in because you would basically want to pinch off all of our history and then make as alien a thing in the lab as you can. You can never make an entirely alien thing. Um, and so this is the conceptualization I think people really don't understand about the origin of life and how hard the experiments are. It's the first time in human history that we really have to control for the fact that we're agents that exist in the universe and quantify how much of our agency and evolution we put into the experiment to say we succeeded. And so if we could do the experimental program, then maybe that gets at the other question about the generality of physics and thinking about these things. And then maybe we can get to sort of my dark thought experiment. But that was just kind of, I think, the thought processes of building these very abstract theories and trying to think about how they apply. There's just so many like ways of thinking about it. And I find that these kind of thought experiments are really helpful for framing what are the paradoxical things and where are they solving problems and these kind of things. But that's sort of, I think, where we land with, you know, the experimental science of alien life, making aliens in the lab versus we would love to see another totally independent lineage somewhere. But as we were saying before, that might be so hard because we might not recognize them because their entire history is so totally different. Maybe, you know, if I was totally speculative, maybe it's just like one life per universe rather than one life per planet, which has always been my canonical argument because the universe itself is a structure that first assembled elements and the elements were assembled into stars and the stars were assembled into planets. And now on a particular planet, there's this particular trajectory of continual assembly. And it's like this kind of narrowing thing. But maybe the whole structure is one example of life because it's just this constant assembly. We happen to be interested 
in the part that happens on a planet. And actually, this is what Michael and Chris were I, I really debating about is like, we care about the complexity generation that happens on a planet, not the stuff that happens in a star and, and those things, because that's where that process is now cascading into things that look like us. Certainly, it would save us the diplomacy. Yes. If it, if it yes, out. indeed. That's yeah. a big problem. I don't deal in that area. Yeah, no, no, no. Although, that one's too hard a problem for me. Although, I don't know that I'll keep this in the episode, but I just wanted to say that I love y'all mention him by name in the planet scale intelligence paper, which I appreciated. Yeah. The Pierre Terre de Chardin. Yeah. That this whole notion, which again, this was like a Jesuit cosmic notion that yeah. the universe was growing together to know itself more and more right. completely until it's, you know, somehow set, like all a thing knowing itself. It does sometimes feel that way when you, you know, I heard just last night from UC Santa Cruz postdocs that were in town and we're talking about how they're building a, a 3D model of Physerum slime mold yeah. to model the cosmic web. Cool. You know, and and it's just like, oh, well, that's Star Trek. You yeah. know, every series is we're going to encounter an even more alien alien. Yep. And then we're going to de-other them. Yes. We're going to find yeah. the overlap of our causal graphs. Right. It's compassionate. Yeah. On this note, it's super interesting about the word alien because we use it linguistically to mean other. So it's like once you come to other, understand something, it's not alien anymore. So this is what's really paradoxical about alien life. It's very interesting to me. Right. So I, I hope folks listening feel that you, Sarah, are a slightly less alien after Excellent. listening to this. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really fun. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.